The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is John chapter 4, verses 43 through John chapter 5, verse 17. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who? Who is he? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. The word of God for the people of God. Well, hey, friends. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know about you, but I'm enjoying working through the Gospel of John together. That's what we're doing. If you're newer, just joining us, uh, working our way through this fourth book of the New Testament. And um, John has laid out for us his purpose. We looked at this a few weeks back. We began this series in chapter 20. John tells us why he's writing, tells us the point of this gospel. And the point is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John's purpose in writing is to actually convince us to believe in Jesus. And to that end, he puts Jesus front and center in the gospel. So he wants us to see who Jesus was, what Jesus did, how people responded to Jesus, why certain people opposed Jesus and others welcomed him, and how Jesus fulfills basic human needs and longings. And we saw last week how Jesus fulfilled the deep soul thirst of a Samaritan woman and how he offers living water to everyone who's thirsty and who will come to him and drink. And this week's, text, this week's text shows us how Jesus speaks to another deep need that every one of us has, and that is the need for healing. Every one of us in this room, every one of us listening to this sermon later, everyone uh, encountering this message is a person in need of healing. What it means to be human is to be broken and wounded and busted up, right? All of us have lived and had experiences in life that have caused us to be hurting. And some of us carry our pain right on the surface. Others of us bury it way down deep. Some of us are maybe too aware of our wounds, while others of us maybe aren't aware enough. But the fact remains that to be a human is to be a person in need of healing. And one of the great joys and burdens of being a pastor and walking with all of you is the joy and the burden of being led into some of those places in your lives. And I, know I speak for all the pastors and elders here when I say it's an honor to, to walk on that journey with you together. And as I said last week, it's easy to look around a room like this and to assume that everyone else must be whole and kind of have it put together and you're the only one who's walking wounded. And so I just want to put that to rest again and to say, listen, everybody in this room, and not just in this room, but everybody who's human has been formed by a story. And everybody's story has in it pain and suffering. To say it another way, every one of us is a sinner and every one of us is a sufferer. And I'm not just talking about physical suffering, though that's certainly what's front and center in these stories that John tells us. But I'm talking about suffering in the broadest sense. We need healing. Physically, psychologically, socially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, to be a human is to be a person in need of healing. Now, I actually think all of us agree on that. And not just us here, but I think most people would agree, yeah, human beings are broken and wounded people in need of some healing. I don't think there would be much disagreement with that. The question is, or what we disagree on, is where healing is to be found, right? So very few people in our world would say, no, human beings are just fine. Most of us would say, yeah, we have some issues and problems. What it means to be human is to be a person in need of healing. But we might disagree on where healing is to be found. So here are some of the solutions on offer in the world around us. Some of us would say, hey, healing is found in 
education, if we just know more, learn more, find out more, uh, we, you know, give people a better education and development, that will solve the problems in the world. Other people would say um, the answer is in uh, progress, human progress. And if, if society just keeps advancing and we just use more and more technology and ask better and better questions, eventually that will heal us and solve our problems. Other people might say uh, that the key to healing is therapy. And if we just submit ourselves to counseling and find the right healer, the right therapist, then, then we can find our way to healing. And so in our culture, there are many answers to the question, where can we find healing and wholeness? What John wants you to see, what John wants to hold forward to you, is that Jesus is in fact the great healer of human beings. That the deepest and fullest and truest healing is found in Jesus. And all those other things might be part of the solution. Not that any of those is unimportant or unnecessary, but actually that none of those is the answer. That the answer to the deepest needs and wounds and pain in the human experience is the healing presence of Jesus. That's what John wants us to see. Jesus is a healer. That's what John is showing us in this text. And we want to look at three things this morning. I want to see who Jesus heals, how Jesus heals, and then the implications for us. All right? Who Jesus heals, how Jesus heals, and then some of the implications for us. So let's look first of all at who Jesus heals. John tells us two stories of healing back to back here at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So let's dive in. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now remember, we're coming in in the middle of a chapter, and John has just told us the story of the Samaritan woman and the whole village of Samaritans who came to Jesus and he stayed with them and taught them. And so now he says, after that, Jesus went back to Galilee. And when John says a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, what he's doing is he's drawing a contrast between the response to Jesus among the Samaritans and the response to Jesus among the Galileans. The Samaritans, these outsiders, these people who were not familiar uh, as, as the Jewish people were with all of God's law, these people received Jesus warmly and welcomed him. Meanwhile, the Galileans in his own hometown, it says, had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast. Their interest in Jesus was primarily about what they'd seen Jesus do, the cool stuff that he had done in Jerusalem, and particularly the ways that he seemed to be maybe a political deliverer, maybe one who would get them out from under the thumb of the Romans. So John wants you to see the faith, the response to Jesus in Samaria was real genuine. The faith, the response to Jesus in Galilee was less genuine. Verse 46, so he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, if you're a parent, you know that one of the deepest places of vulnerability, one of the places where you feel the most exposed is when your child is ill and there doesn't seem to be anything you can do about it. Instinctive to every parent is the desire to protect your kids from harm, to help set them up for a good life, to help them flourish and thrive. And when your child is ill and it seems like it's out of your hands, that's a really helpless place to be. 
I remember when my son Lewis was a month old, he came down with RSV, which is a serious respiratory virus. And so my wife took him to the pediatrician and she called me and said, we're on the way to Children's Hospital and they're admitting us. And so I remember driving over there and just my infant son laying in his bed, hooked up to all these tubes and not even really old enough to understand what was going on. Not old enough that I could explain to him, hey, relax, calm down, here's what's happening. Just not able to comprehend any of that and still vulnerable right there. And some of you guys have been in that place. That's a scary place to be. Well, that's where this father finds himself. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had come down from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You got to admire the faith of this guy, regardless of whether it's real genuine or not so genuine. He just says, I heard Jesus is here, and I know Jesus can heal people. So he comes to Jesus. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Just a gentle response from Jesus, right? Super warm and engaging. Here's what you need to know. The you in this verse is plural. So Jesus is not speaking to this father about his request. He's speaking about the Galileans in general because there are people observing this happen. There are people watching this father come to Jesus and say, hey, come and heal my son. And Jesus is saying, hey, what you people want is you want signs and wonders. It's a rebuke to the Galileans. It's not so much a rebuke to this man. In fact, we see the response in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He just reiterates his request to Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So we hear about the resolution, right? The son is well. We see the response of the household. They believe in Jesus. And then John reminds us, this was the second sign Jesus did. Remember, John has structured this whole gospel around a series of signs. And we talked a few weeks ago about what a sign is. It points to something. What John wants you to remember is that the miracles we see Jesus do in the gospels are not like raw displays of supernatural power. They're not like Jesus showing off that he can do cool stuff. They're signs pointing us to who Jesus is. And here's why this is important, particularly in this text. Because there are people in this room who have prayed prayers similar to this and not had them answered. Jesus does not heal every child who is ill. Jesus doesn't answer every prayer for healing. And so if we just see this as, oh, Jesus can heal, and he's going to do this all the time in every situation, we miss the point of the story. Jesus didn't even heal every sick person in Galilee. The point is, John is saying this Jesus healed this particular sick child in this particular moment, and he did so as a sign pointing to something greater, as a picture of what he had come to do. More on that later. So the first person we see Jesus heal is an official son in Galilee. Then right on the heels of this story, now John tells us another story of healing. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Notice, by the way, the interesting description John gives us here. He tells us what the pool is named. He tells us where it's located and sort of its features. It has these five colonnades. And this is only, this pool, this place in Jerusalem is only talked about in the Gospel of John. And so as you can imagine, for a long time, skeptics imagine John is just making this up. This is like some made-up story, some imaginary tale about Jesus doing something at a place we've never heard of. You won't be surprised to know that in the late 19th century, archaeologists unearthed the remains of this exact pool. In fact, it's exactly as John describes. It's a twin pool. There's an upper pool and a lower pool with five colonnades around it. And it is exactly at this location, right near what's called the Sheep Gate in Old Jerusalem. I brought along a photo of the archaeological dig. I know you can't tell much from that photo. It looks like some ruins because that's what it is. But these ruins are this place. And what's interesting is not only was this a sacred place for the Jewish people, but it was that for the Greek pagans as well. The Greeks had built a shrine here to Asclepius, the god of healing. And so here's what's interesting about Jesus doing something at this place. Jesus is saying something about himself to the Jews and to the Gentiles. In this place where they both believed healing happened, Jesus is going to come and display his healing power. This place had a superstitious mythology attached to it. It was a natural spring, and it would bubble up from time to time. And the superstition was when the waters began to bubble, if you were the first one in, you would be healed. And as you know, if you know anything about natural springs, they actually do have beneficial health effects. And so probably there were times and seasons where these things really did heal people. But we read in verse 3 what's sort of attached to this place. In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? N.T. Wright suggests that we should read this verse with the emphasis on the word want. Do you want to be healed? Listen to what Wright observes. The shrine didn't seem particularly successful. Clearly, the man Jesus found lying there had made a way of life out of his long wait for healing. Jesus' question to him is perhaps quite pointed. Do you really want to get better? Or are you now quite happy to eke out your days lounging around here with the feeble excuse that someone else always gets in first? Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Uh, again, John regularly exposes us to this reality that we as the readers know things that people in the story don't know, right? So we know Jesus is here and he's asking this guy, do you want to be healed? And he has the power right now to heal this guy. And in fact, we just read a story of him healing a child in Galilee the guy's thinking, well, of course I want to be healed. I can't get in the pool in time. Like his problem is logistical. So his answer to Jesus is, I have no one to put me in the water. I, I keep missing out when the water is stirred up. D.A. Carson suggests that we, we should hear this and read this as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. 
Like this guy is not the model of faith and belief in Jesus' healing powers. More of a guy's like, I don't know, I can't really get in the water in time. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So who does Jesus heal? Well, we see Jesus heals one person who's seeking and one who isn't seeking. One who's desperate and one who seems not to be very desperate at all. One who seems to have a humble faith and one who seems to be more of a crotchety old cynic. One who goes looking for Jesus and one whom Jesus goes looking for. So here's the interesting thing John is showing us. Maybe you're looking for healing. Maybe you're not looking for it yet. Maybe you're aware of your brokenness and need and the places in your soul that need fulfillment. Or maybe you've made peace with the status quo. Maybe you're desperate for change. Maybe you're cynical that change is even possible. Whichever of those places you find yourself, John is saying, Jesus can heal you. Whether you're looking for it or not, whether you're hopeful or cynical, whether you're seeking Jesus or not seeking him at all, Jesus is the healer. Jesus has the power and the ability and the capacity to bring healing to the human condition. So let's look now not just at who Jesus heals, but let's look at how he heals, which is a key feature of the story. Look at verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 49 again. Look at the how. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And then likewise, chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. In both circumstances, Jesus heals by the power of his word. Jesus speaks, and it happens. This is supposed to remind you, friends, of Genesis chapter 1. Right? In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Such is the cadence of Genesis chapter 1. The world exists because God spoke, and it was. And Likewise, Jesus in this chapter speaks, and it is. And just as God spoke and it was so, so Jesus speaks and it is so. Jesus heals by the power of his word in both cases. So here's the burning question for you and me. How can we hear the healing words of Jesus? Where can we encounter the transforming power of Jesus' words? Well, you're encountering them right now. John's written words about Jesus, which we are reading, are also themselves the very words of Jesus. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's the breath of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The scriptures are the words of God. And in John chapter 16, which we'll get to probably in March or April, uh, Jesus will say this to his disciples. I still have many things to say to you 
but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is giving us here a doctrine of Scripture. Jesus has more things he wants to say to his disciples, and rather than saying them now, he's going to say them through the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit upon the church at the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit guides the apostles to inscripturate the Word of God. So that at the end of the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's telling you how we got the Scriptures. He's saying these are the words of God written down as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is the Word of God. Jesus heals by the power of his word. And today, though Jesus is not here with us in person, he speaks his healing word through the scriptures. The word of God has power to heal. Now, let me be clear on what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Because I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying just read your Bible and all your problems will go away. Okay, so let's be clear that that's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. I am saying Jesus heals by the power of his word and therefore all real and true and deep and lasting healing comes from the application of scripture to life. The scriptures, the word of God applied to our lives do bring wholeness and flourishing and healing. Now, sometimes you need a mentor or a counselor, or a therapist, or a small group, or a pastor to help you understand the words of Scripture and apply them to the particular issues and questions of your life and of your soul. But friends, make no mistake, when we submit our lives to the Scriptures, when we decide God knows what he's talking about, and I'm going to live according to his word, then we are on the path to real healing and wholeness and flourishing. How much of the pain and confusion and dysfunction in our lives really comes down to this. We've tried to do things our own way instead of living by the word of God. Listen, this is not popular to say. You won't hear a lot of people say it, but listen, when we do not live our lives by the light of the word of God, we will not thrive. God has given us his word because he is the creator of the world and of human beings, and he knows how we are made and what causes us to thrive and flourish. And when we live our lives in ways that don't conform to his word, we can't experience that we will thrive and experience joy and life. And there are a lot of Christians who have believed in Jesus for salvation and yet are living contrary to the word of Jesus in some area of life. And listen, that just doesn't work. You will not thrive. You will not experience life that way, Jesus heals. Jesus brings us to wholeness and flourishing by the power of his word. And so if we want to experience wholeness and flourishing and abundant life and real joy, we must bring every area of our lives under the authority of Jesus 
in his word. So we've looked at who Jesus heals. We've looked at how Jesus heals. Let's consider now some of the implications for us. And remember, John is telling us these healings are signs, right? They are pointing us to the bigger story John is telling and the bigger reason Jesus has come into the world. Here are a couple of the implications for us. I think two questions this text and this story puts before us. First, will you believe the word that Jesus has spoken? That's one of the fundamental questions John is forcing us to ask. Will you, will I, believe the word Jesus has spoken? I mean, that's what the official at Capernaum did. Did you catch that in the text? The text literally says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. I mean, can you imagine what an amazing moment this is? This father, desperate for help, comes to Jesus and says, hey, come and heal my son. And Jesus says, hey, man, I don't need to come there. Go. He's healed. And this father just turns and walks away, just takes Jesus at his word and says, okay. Will you believe the word Jesus has spoken? Now, listen, let's admit that we've done some strange things with the word believe, right? Uh, I told you in the beginning of the series that John's going to use this word over and over and over again. John talks a lot about believing in Jesus and believing the word of Jesus. But we've done some weird things with the word believe. So we have emotionalized the idea of belief as though believing requires us, first of all, to achieve a certain level of feeling or emotion. We have to feel a certain way about it. Or we've rationalized belief as though believing in Jesus requires us to get all of our questions sorted out first. Or we've psychologized belief as though believing in Jesus is impossible and so we sort of get all of our other issues sorted out. I want you to notice in the text what believing looks like. It's so simple and challenging. Notice what believing looks like in both stories. These individuals hear the word of Jesus. They count it as true and they act upon it. They hear what Jesus says, they decide that it's true, and they act upon it. Look at chapter 4, verse 50. We just read it. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Go is the command. Go is the verb. Hey, head back home. Your son's going to live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went. Chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. They just hear the word Jesus has said. They count it as true and they act on it. What about you? Will you hear the words of Jesus, count them as true and act upon them? Faith, that's really what, that's really what belief looks like. It's what faith looks like. I mean, have you been to the doctor recently? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but probably in the recent past, you've been to the doctor and here's what happens when you go to the doctor. Your doctor says, hey, here are your symptoms, and here's the course of treatment I am prescribing. Here's the treatment plan. Here's what you need to do next. And you have a choice in that moment either to trust the doctor's word, take action, or ignore what the doctor says. Now, sometimes it's wise to get a second opinion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not not a medical professional. I'm just a pastor, okay? So do what your doctor says, but here's my point. Every one of us in that moment has a choice. Am I going to trust that this doctor knows what they're talking about or not? And really, that's the same choice we have with Jesus. 
Jesus is the great physician. He's the healer of souls. He's the one who understands and knows the human person. And every one of us has the decision to make. Are we going to trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about or not? Will you take Jesus at his word? Listen, this text shows us that part of what spiritual healing involves is turning from what's false and believing what's true. And, and what's true is what Jesus says is true. So here's the challenge for all of us. There's something in us that's just not sure that what Jesus says is true. But healing, wholeness, flourishing requires turning from what's false and believing what's true. Look what happens in this story. The invalid at the pool of Bethesda has spent 38 years believing the lie that if he just gets in the magic water at the right time, he'll be healed. And do you know what that false belief has gotten him? 38 years of lying next to a pool. Jesus shows up and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And all he does is believe that and act on it and it gets him a whole new life. Friends, in the same way, we're called to reject the lies and falsehoods we've come to believe, whether they're told to us by our culture, by our own sinful hearts, by our families of origin, by other religious systems and leaders. We're, come, we're called to reject falsehood and lies and believe the truth, the word that Jesus has spoken. So one of the questions this text puts before us is just, will you believe the word, will you believe the truth that Jesus has spoken? Here's a second question that's different but related. Will you allow Jesus and his word to have authority in your life? I think really that's the bigger question under the question. Most of us would say, yeah, yeah, I want to believe the word Jesus has spoken. But the question is, will I allow Jesus and his word to have authority in my life? Listen, all of us live life according to some source of authority. There's some standard by which we make judgments. This is real. This is not real. This is true. This is false. This is credible. This is not credible. There's some authority that we live by. Here's the question I want you to honestly ask yourself. What is that source of authority in your life for you? What's the highest source of authority in your life? You know what it is nine times out of 10? Whatever I think. That's what the highest source of authority tends to be. And the problem is Jesus confronts every other source of authority because Jesus has come onto the scene saying, I am the son of God. I am the savior of the world. I'm the creator and redeemer of the human race. And I have authority to tell you how to live. And I'm inviting you to live this way, which is actually in keeping with how you're meant to live. But Jesus's authority confronts every other source of authority. Look at the end of this story, by the way. We see this in a profound way. Verse 9b of Chapter five. So after this guy gets up his, his, takes up his bed and walks, we read this. Now that day was the Sabbath. So, so the Jews said to the man who had, been he, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now to be clear, God's law said nothing about taking up your bed and walking when you've just been healed. Okay. Um, what God's law said is honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And what the scribes and the rabbis had done was add a bunch of other laws around that law to sort of fence it in and make sure we kept it. I mean, you know, you parents, you do this. Don't act like you don't. You're like, yeah, yeah, this is the real rule, but we got some other rules around that one just to make sure that we actually follow that one, right? They're, they're scrupulous about it. So the Jews say, hey, man, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you. You can't actually carry that. That's against the rules. Notice the response in verse 11. It's kind of humorous. But he answered them, the man who healed me 
That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. What he's saying is, hey, the guy who just healed me, I think is a higher authority than your rules. Like whatever just happened to me, that guy has authority to tell me what to do next. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Friends, don't miss this. These religious leaders who are kind of on a power trip, they don't see a human being who's been restored to health and wholeness. They see some rules that have gotten broken. Isn't that tragic? And man, our hearts can do that same thing. He doesn't even know who it is. Then he goes and finds out, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In other words, why are they frustrated Jesus? Because his authority is trumping or claiming to trump their authority. They said, you can't do stuff like that on the Sabbath. Jesus said, no, I can't. These Jewish leaders, see, have a little kingdom of their own. And the authority of Jesus is a threat to their little kingdom. It's coming against their authority. It's demanding that they submit to a higher authority, the authority of the kingdom of God. And listen, there's a little kingdom in your life as well, isn't there? There's a battle for authority in your soul and in your heart. And John is asking you, will you allow Jesus and his word to have authority in your life? Hey, let's be honest. Underneath all of our intellectual objections to Christianity, underneath many of our emotional objections to Christianity, underneath, underneath many of our ethical questions about, is this right or wrong, good or bad? Underneath all of that, you know what the fundamental issue usually is? The authority of Jesus. When it comes down to it, I just want to be my own God. I don't want Jesus to be the authority. And the fundamental claim the kingdom of God makes as it crashes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ is this. Will you allow Jesus to have ultimate authority? Will you allow his word to be the authority in your life? Like that's really the issue. I mean, think about it, right? Do you know why you don't want to tithe? Because you want to have authority over your financial life, right? You don't want Jesus to have it. You know why you don't want to be in community? Because you want to decide which relationships are really worth your time and which ones aren't. You know why you don't want to become a Christian? Because you want to retain control and authority over your own existence. You don't want to admit that Jesus has authority. You know why you don't want to repent of sin when you feel the Holy Spirit pressing on some issue of your life or character? Because you want the authority to decide which things really matter and which ones don't. Like all of our issues with Jesus are ultimately issues of authority. And that's why Jesus, in a very kind and loving and gentle but persistent way, is going to keep pressing the button of authority. Faith and discipleship are always an issue of authority. And Jesus is going to keep in this gospel over and over again, pressing up against this issue in your heart and saying, are you going to let me have authority in your life? Discipleship is ultimately bowing the knee to the world's true king. It's saying, Jesus, I give up my autonomy. You are God. You get the freedom to say what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, what matters and what doesn't. You are Lord. You are king. So where are you avoiding Jesus' 
authority. Will you allow Jesus and his word to have authority in your life? John is showing us Jesus heals human beings and he heals by his word. And so the implications for us are really these two questions. Will you believe the word that Jesus has spoken? And will you allow Jesus and his word to have authority in your life? Now, let's be honest. Those are two very profound questions, right? And they touch us in deep places. If you're asking me, will I believe the word that Jesus has spoken? And will I allow Jesus's word to have authority in my life? Those are some challenging questions. So, what can cause me to joyfully believe the word Jesus has spoken? What can cause me to joyfully and gladly submit to the authority of Jesus in my life? What can move me from, I don't know, that sounds challenging, I'm not sure I want to do that, to absolutely yes. What can move my heart in that direction? Well, here's what can do it. When we see what Jesus uses his authority to do. And the text gives us a hint in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus is saying two things in this one response. First of all, he's making a clever response to their claim that he's breaking the Sabbath. Because every Jewish rabbi and every good, scrupulous Jewish scholar would say, there's one person who gets to break the Sabbath. Who is it? God, babies are born on the Sabbath. People die on the Sabbath. The sun comes up on the Sabbath. God gets to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. You can't work, but God can. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what, y'all? My father's working today and I'm gonna work too. So it's a clever response to their claim, but here's the other thing I want you to hear Jesus saying in this. Jesus is saying to these Jewish leaders, hey, I'm up to something. I'm accomplishing something. I'm here on a mission. I'm doing something. There's a work I've come here to accomplish. What is Jesus going to do? What is the work that he's going to accomplish with this massive authority that spoke the world into existence? With this authority that chased the fever out of a dying child and restored the legs of a crippled man? What is Jesus going to do with this amazing authority? What he's going to do is he's going to lay it aside and humble himself to the point of death. You know why you can trust Jesus? Because he went all the way to the cross for you. You know why you can joyfully submit to the authority of Jesus? Because it is a gentle, humble authority that's not out to domineer, but to serve and sacrifice. You should absolutely believe the word Jesus has spoken. You should absolutely let Jesus and his word have authority in your life. And you can joyfully when you see the work that Jesus has come to do. And that's why John is pointing his whole gospel in the direction of the cross and the empty tomb. Because what he's saying to us over and over again is Jesus has come to do this amazing work. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead, redeeming the world from sin, and bringing the kingdom of God. My father is working until now, and I am working. When we see the work Jesus has come to do, we joyfully, wholeheartedly, 
want to submit to his authority. And that now, when he says, my father is working until now, friends, listen, that now includes today. That now includes today. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are still at work through the power and authority of the written word of God, bringing the healing grace of God into the lives of ordinary people like you and me. That's happening now, today. So let's bring our broken lives into the healing, transforming presence of the risen Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we acknowledge that we are broken people in need of healing. And we thank you that you are the great physician who heals souls and who heals human beings. We're mindful as we read this story that both this child and this invalid man ultimately died again. So this, this little healing was not the ultimate hope. It's a pointer to the glory of the resurrection and to the beauty of new heavens and new earth. So Jesus, would you allow us to believe in your healing power and in the word of your grace? Would you provoke us in the places in our lives where we are resistant to your authority, where we don't want to let you have the say? Would you help us to humble ourselves and let you and your word have weight and authority in our lives? Thank you that you healed both the man who was looking for it in the man who wasn't. And in the same way, you have the power this morning to break through to soft hearts and to hard hearts as well. So we humble ourselves under your word and we invite your healing grace and presence to minister to us for our good and for your glory. Amen.